You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You can tell a lot about a person and how they answer this question, what it says about them, and subsequently probably the life that they live or don't live. Throughout history, there have been different people who have given answers to this question of what they think of this Jesus of Nazareth, this man who lived over 2,000 years ago. English philosopher John Stuart Mill said Jesus was, quote, the pattern of perfection for humanity. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great French conqueror, said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was not a man. We know what the latest head of chaplains for Harvard University, Greg Greg Epstein, thinks of Jesus. Mr. Epstein does not think Jesus is God in any way. He does not think this. Harvard University, the oldest institution of higher education in the United States, was founded in 1636 to train Protestant pastors. The Puritans who settled in New England in the 1630s had a nagging concern The nagging concern was, how do we make sure our pastors in New England and beyond will be able to be strong in the Bible? And so, in 1636, they founded Harvard University. In fact, the motto for their university was the following, truth for Christ and the church. Think of that. The motto For Harvard University, the oldest institution, educational institution in the United States, his motto was truth for Christ and the church. In fact, it was named after a pastor named John Harvard. For the first 70 years of Harvard's history, they did not have a president who was not a pastor as well. Clearly, the times have changed. Now... The head of the chaplains for Harvard University, over 40 different chaplains of 20 different religions of Harvard, is himself a humanist who does not have any religious beliefs. When it comes to Jesus, Mr. Epstein believes Jesus is, well, a man from human history, nothing more, nothing less. When the question is asked, who is Jesus? Maybe some of you have never thought much about Jesus. Greg Gilbert, in his book, writing, Who is Jesus?, says the following, Who do you think Jesus is? Maybe you have never given it much thought. In a way, that's entirely understandable. After all, we're talking about a man who was born in the first century into an obscure Jewish carpenter's family. He never held any political office, never ruled any nation, never commanded any armies. He never even met a Roman emperor. 
Instead, for three and a half years, this man, Jesus, simply taught people about ethics and spirituality. He read and explained the Jewish scriptures to Jewish people, and if the eyewitness accounts of his life are to be believed at all, he also did some pretty out-of-the-ordinary things. But then again, Jesus also ran bitterly afoul of the authorities of his day, and not long after he started his public ministry, he wound up being executed on a cross by one of Rome's many provincial governors, a kind of an imperial middle manager for the people who had real power. On top of that, Greg writes, all of this happened some 2,000 years ago. So why are we still talking about him? Why is this man, Jesus, so inescapable? Well, not only has Jesus left a huge imprint on human history, but his influence has been seen throughout even our lifetime, whether you even recognize it or not. But this goes back to a conversation that even Jesus himself is having with some others, similar to perhaps some of you even here tonight. We can find that conversation in Matthew chapter 22. If you're new to the Bible, we're in the book of Matthew. This is the first book in the New Testament, kind of towards the latter third of the Bible. If you don't have it, you can just simply listen along. If you'd like to have a copy of the Bible, we have them for you for free at the Welcome Center. You can grab one of those, take that with you as a gift from us to you. Matthew 22 is where we are tonight as we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. And really, we're in the middle of this series of debates. As we've said before, these are not humble inquirers. These are hostile interrogators. They have questions, and they don't intend to listen to the answers given because they believe they already know the answers before they've even asked the question. You can see these debates. The four debates with the religious leaders about Jesus' authority and identity. Number one, the debate is, do I give money to the government? This is a question asked by the Pharisees and the Herodians in Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. The second one is, am I still married after I die? The Sadducees had this question, creating this hypothetical scenario, and which one and how is this person to be married? Question number three is, what is the greatest commandment from the Bible? We're back to the Pharisees with that question. We saw that last week in Matthew 22. And then the question for tonight, who is the son of David? Pharisees are not done. They have some more questions they want to ask, and we'll see that tonight. If you're taking notes, then let me kind of lay this out for you as we're going to see the text this evening in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 41 through verse 46. First of all, we're going to see an exposing question, an exposing question. Look with me at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I wonder how many of you have had a job interview that you knew was coming, and it was something that you were quite concerned about how well you're going to do. Perhaps the night before, you were going to be interviewed, you thought about some of the questions you might be asked, and you hoped as you were going to be asked the questions that you were going to be prepared with an answer, because no one wants to kind of be caught in such a way like, oh, I don't know. And you have some of the predictable questions you might be expecting, you know, where are you coming from? What do you think are your strengths or your weaknesses? 
We've kind of heard all those sort of silly answers. We've maybe even given them ourselves. You know, one of my weaknesses, I just, just work too hard. I just got to learn how to take a break. Like, oh, man, what a gift to our company you would be. You know, what do you think you'd bring to this company? As my son would like to say, well, I think donuts on Monday mornings could be a start. Oh, that would be great. And these kind of questions you might ask. But then perhaps your fear would be exposed by a question that you would not be prepared for. A question like this, what other jobs besides this one are you considering? What other companies besides this one are you applying for? You're like, oh no, should I tell them? Should I tell them that I'm actually considering altogether different careers? Should I let them know that I'm considering their greatest competitor? Or maybe this kind of question, how much do you think this position is worth you being paid for? couple million? Just got to shoot for the big stars, you know? Like, I'm not sure what to say to that. These kind of questions you're hoping to be prepared. In Matthew 22, Jesus, up to this point, has been asked all the questions. He's not worried about being caught caught flat-footed. There's no question you can ask God that he's not prepared for. You can read the book of Psalms for yourself and realize there's not a question that comes out of the human experience, out of the range of human emotion that God has not heard. Friend, take your questions there. Take your doubts to God. Take your pain there. He is prepared. He is ready. God is big enough for you to beat on his chest and ask any number of questions from any range of emotions. So when God appears in human form as he does Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and he is asking a number of questions, he is prepared. But the problem is, is we're not always prepared to answer his questions. And that's exactly what happens here in the text. He asks an exposing question. This Q&A where Jesus says, I'll do the question asking now, and I'd like to hear your answer. And the question seems like a simple one. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the son. Whose son is he? Now, just for those of you who might be new to the Bible, you maybe have thought Jesus Christ is like saying Eric Bancroft. Eric is my first name. Bancroft is my last name. And you maybe have just thought, understandably, innocently, quite understandably, as far as naively, not being familiar with the Bible, that Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not his last name. Christ is actually a title. It's a title of deity, a a title that means anointed one. And so here is Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, because that's where he's from. That's his townspeople. It's like, you know, Eric of Miami. That's where they're from. Okay, so here's Jesus of Nazareth asking this question to a bunch of very Bible literate people. Some of you grew up in a Christian home. Some of you have memories of going to VBS. Some of you went to a program maybe called Awana. You're like, what's Awana? That's okay. You don't know. Some of you maybe grew up with parents who taught you the scriptures. You maybe have sat in churches like this in years past, and so you'd be familiar with this. Well, let me just tell you, anything you would know, these people would know even more. We talk about Q&A sessions. They think like, no, oh, they'd be ready. And so he asked this question, what do you think about the Christ, the anointed one? Whose son is he? Notice Jesus does not directly 
ask about himself. He does not say, who do you think I am? He wanted the Pharisees to think about what they already believed about the identity of the Messiah, also known as the Christ, God's promised anointed one, which takes us secondly now to what is a deficient answer. So we see, first of all, an exposing question, and now, secondly, verses 42 through 45, a deficient answer. Look at what they say in the rest of verse 42. They said to him, the son of David. Their answer comes quickly because they feel like, oh, we got this one. We got this one. This is like, this is like asking somebody who has a Bible, hey, what's the first book of the Bible? You're like, Genesis, what else you got? I'm on a roll. I'm one for one. Okay, next question. First book in the New Testament, Matthew. Okay, man, this is the Bible drill. You're nailing it. So they have a question that's been posed to them. The question seems like a simple one. Why? It's simple, and yet they're missing it. They didn't get it, and Jesus is about to point this out. They thought the son of David as Messiah, like David would be sitting on a throne a warlike conquest as David did, and a general which David would be like, but all over again, finally someone who would lead us back to victory. Friends, you have to understand, Israelites at this point in human history have had some rough days. They've had some difficult centuries. They went 400 years without a single prophet, and then when he did show up wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and eating honey, even the religious leaders are like, seriously? This guy? Known as John the Baptist, this is the one? No, we don't believe it. And now, all they want is the Romans to be defeated, get back their land, have their king. Let's get back to the glory days. The glory days. There's a lot of people who think like that in America. There's a lot of people who think like that in other countries. Man, I wish we could just get back to what it used to be like. The good old days. When things were right looking altogether wrongly at what they're wanting to see. What we're seeing here is that Jesus begins to respond to them with a reality of how the David king that they're looking for would be different than they would expect. Instead of a ruling king, as his first and foremost introduction, he would be a humble substitute. Jesus, throughout his life, shows himself to be a Messiah that will establish the king by another path than political or military methods. Instead, he will be a suffering servant before any time in the future that he eventually comes back as a military conqueror. So look at Jesus' reply to their answer. They say, the son of David, verse 43, he says to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, because Psalms is not necessarily hard to find in the Bible, because it's kind of right in the middle of your Bibles, if you've got a printed Bible, let me ask you to go to Psalm 110. So keep your finger in Matthew, because we're going to go back there. But go to Psalm 110, right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm is another word for the word song, S-O-N-G. It's a collection of songs used in worship to God. Go to Psalm 110, because what Jesus is doing here is He's quoting Psalm 110, specifically verse 1. But I want to go ahead and just let you see the text and its context. Psalm 110, verse 1. 
and following. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. So when Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 44, is citing a Bible passage, this is where it's coming from. It's coming from this psalm. Now, He only quotes the first part of it, but I want you to see that part in its context. Because this is the conversation that Jesus is having. And Jesus quoting Psalm 110, I want you to see what Jesus does in verse 43. And I don't want you to miss it. Because it's profound for those of us who are Christians as what Jesus is saying about the Bible, particularly the Psalms. First of all, Jesus thinks the Psalm was written by David. He is endorsing its human authorship. He's recognizing what the psalm says. It's written by David. As it says, so it is. You can, you can go to any kind of critical scholar today as well. Do we really know? I'm just saying, I, I, um, if, if I may, Jesus thought so. That's good enough for me. Secondly, what Jesus is saying here by implicit reality is that Jesus thinks the psalm was also written by God. That's what he means in verse 43 when he says, how is it then that David in the spirit... This phrase, in the Spirit, is referring to what Peter would later describe as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Men moved along by God. So Jesus is endorsing what we know as the dual authorship of the Bible. So you could ask the question, who wrote Psalm 110? You're like, Jesus. I mean, excuse me. You could say David did. God did. Well, which one? Both. Who wrote the Bible? God did. But I thought it says Isaiah. Well, he wrote it too. This dual authorship reality. And third, Jesus thinks the psalm was written with messianic prediction, which is exactly what its express purpose was. And the Pharisees knew that. The Pharisees knew Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110, interestingly, would have been so well known by them that they would have regularly cited it. In fact, later on in the New Testament, it is the most cited psalm of any psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews like just has a field day with it. He's talking about it all the time. And what Jesus is trying to note here is basically saying, listen, if the Messiah were simply an earthly son of David, as if you're going to some familytree.com, then you'd be missing it because look at the question what Jesus asks in Matthew 22, verse 45. He says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In Jewish thought, the previous generation was always greater than the subsequent generation. The father's always greater than the son. So if the son of David is to come and to set the people of God free, 
then it's believed that a descendant from the line of David, from the family line, would come and be like David. And oh my goodness, do we love going down memory lane of how awesome David was. Never in Israel's history had they had a king like David, ruled over all. His power, his military might, he had some mistakes, but boy, was he a legit king. And all the other nations knew that and recognized that. So to have a, a, a king like David, oh, please, Lord, bring one like that. But to be clear, because he is referred to as the son of David, it would be presumed he would never be as quite as great as David. But here is the problem that Jesus is pointing out. Jesus asked the Pharisees, then why does David call him my Lord? Why does seemingly the greater earlier generation call a subsequent later generation greater, particularly this one individual? And this is overwhelmingly embarrassing because all they have been thinking about is the promise that God would make to humanity, particularly for the people of Israel, through human expression. And he is pointing out to them here that the people who seemingly should know the Bible the best can't even interpret it with those who have just learned it for the first time. And he exposes them with this answer, this deficient answer of theirs. In Psalm 110, this use of the term Lord is the Use of the term from Hebrew that comes with the word Adonai. This term Adonai is a statement of deity. It comes out in Genesis. It comes out again in the book of Job that this great God, and he is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is why in the book of Hebrews, these Jewish Christians who are tempted to kind of give up their Christianity and go back to their Judaism, the author of Hebrews is like, where do you guys think you're going? You're going to return back to an incomplete understanding of the good news of God. You have a great high priest. You have one who sits at the right hand of God. I think about your job situation I asked you about earlier. It's not only how well of a job you can do in that interview, it's also oftentimes your references. Uh, who knows you? Who can affirm you? And you kind of selectively choose, like the people who would just talk about, like, you're just awesome. Everything you do is awesome. I mean, you know, you're trying to pick, like, you know, your friends. You're trying to pick, like, that manager who really liked you, not the boss who maybe wasn't fond of you. You kind of selectively choose it. Where things get a little tricky is when they call your references and then ask your references for other references. That's like, uh oh, I didn't expect that one. Next thing you know, they're like, they're like these phone calls just started happening. You know, who else could we talk to? You're like, oh, they're really checking this thing out. Friend, it is inconceivable, it is impossible to have a greater reference for you on your spiritual resume with God than to have Jesus listed as the one who signs off on you as having believed in Him than Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than that. For the one who sits at the right hand of God 
to be able to intercede for you, to be able to represent you like, in a, like an attorney in a courtroom, to be able to say, oh, her sins forgiven, his sins forgiven, because they have trusted in me. They have understood I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except to me, and they've come through me. They're fine. Their sin has been paid for, washed whiter than snow. This is the reality of the significance of what it meant for them to recognize that they want to know God, but do they really? Not a God of their choosing, but the God that had been revealing right there to them in the person. They did not want to know. Those of you who are Christians, friend, understand the glorious grand truth of what it means to know Jesus. Not only as a suffering servant, But as Paul says himself in Acts 17, in the day to come, eventually returning as a conquering king. But from that time of him coming as a suffering servant, dying on the cross as a substitute, to the time to come when he returns as a triumphant king who will judge the world according to his righteousness, that time in between, he sits at the right hand of God interceding for you. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Which takes us, sadly, in the text to a tragic response. We not only see the exposing question of verses 41 and 42, and a deficient answer of verses 42 to 45, we now see a tragic response of verse 46. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What's the response? Verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is calling attention to the Pharisees' apparent contradiction about the Christ. He was exposing their utter incompetency to be able to understand the greater truths of the Old Testament. He'd also shown in the earlier verses of Matthew 22 when answering questions about the resurrection, the greatest commandment, or the greatest harmonies of the Bible, all being brought together in Christ. What we see here in verse 46, though, is sad. It's not what they stopped saying. It's what they never said. It's what they never did. The tragic response is that they never repented. They never acknowledged, you know what? You're right. We've been getting it all wrong. We've been reading our Bibles upside down. We try to find every way to discredit you, to deny you, to reject you. And honestly, every type of accusation we've brought against you, you keep proving us wrong and you being right. And you know what? We repent. Forgive us for rejecting you. Forgive us for getting the people to try to discredit you. Forgive us for trying to find some way to arrest you. That never came. That never was the response. They would never stop and accept the fact that Jesus was actually God's son. It's tragic, but it's common. Not just 2,000 years ago, but even today. As of 1999, there were 17,000 
239 books in the Library of Congress written about Jesus. That's of of 22 years ago. 17,239 books in the Library of Congress, on record, written about Jesus. He is the world's most famous person and arguably has had more impact on the world than any other single person in existence. This is quite an accomplishment for a man who died in his 30s as a criminal in a small backwoods corner of the Roman Empire, who left his mark during three years as an itinerant preacher with no earthly possessions to note. But the question I started with is the same question I want to end with, but with one minor modification. Instead of asking, who is Jesus Christ, and potentially getting thousands of answers back, here's the question I want to ask now. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? I mean to ask that to everybody here tonight, non-Christian and Christian. How is what you not say, but what you do, what you decide, how does that answer that question? Not what would the Pharisees do with him? But what have you done with him? Not what do all the books in the Library of Congress say about him, but what do you, my friend, say about him? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.